Well, one of our favorite books, which we love to read our kids, uh, especially before bedtime, is Night Night Farm. And I didn't know if I would actually be able to bring it uh, because it is nearly mutilated. That's how much our kids love it. So this morning, I'm going to do a theological exposition, verse by verse, of Night Night Farm. I'm just kidding. No. It's a wonderful little book. It talks about the various members of a farm getting ready for bed, uh, and, and often I'm ready for bed after I've read it. But what's really cool about the book, and it's a cardboard board book, it's meant to be indestructible, meant to be. On the back, it says that if you open up the last page, which is that of a starry night, and if you place it under a lamp for 30 seconds, and then turn the lights off, the stars will glow. I can't do this because Willa gets scared if I turn the lights off, but I've done it a few times and it actually works. Okay. The stars then are charged when they're exposed to unadulterated light. But if you were to open to the second to last page, so there'd be a page between the last page and the light, the stars wouldn't be charged and the book wouldn't glow. Or if you opened it to the last page, but you put it next to a lamp where there's a lamp shade, it's secondhand light, again, the stars wouldn't charge and the book wouldn't glow. I want you to keep that image in mind as we turn toward our last text in Exodus for this series, and that is Exodus 34. The lectionary gave us Exodus 33 for this morning, but figuring that this would be the last message in our series in Exodus, I decided to choose Exodus 34. I can think of no better passage to cap off our series. After this, we're going to move into Deuteronomy, Joshua, just a few messages in each of those books as we head toward Advent. But this, I think, is a great way to summarize our engagement with the book of Exodus as Christians. So this morning, we're going to do what I've been doing. We're going to study the text in its original context. But then we're going to look at two specific receptions of this passage in the New Testament before moving to words of application, hope for us today. So that is my plan, and I hope that we can feel the book of Exodus as a whole this morning. But before we get into it, Let's take a moment to pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this journey that you have provided, a journey you've taken with us through the book of Exodus. Lord, thank you for the people of Israel, a people with whom we can certainly relate. And I pray that You'd help us see ourselves in their shoes in this story and to feel your presence guiding us toward the promised land. Jesus, be glorified, be present, be incarnate among us this morning, please. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I invite you to turn with me to Exodus 34, if you haven't already. We are going to be reading two excerpts, as you can see in the bulletin, so verses 1 through 4, 
and then verses 29 through 35. Uh, Last week, we looked at the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32, and that was a story in which the people of Israel broke covenant with Yahweh. God had given the Ten Commandments to the people before, and the people of Israel transgressed the Ten Commandments with the golden calf. And so these two stone tablets on which were inscribed these commandments, they were broken because the covenant was broken. However, Moses intercedes for the people and God forgives them. You can read between chapters 32 and 34, there is some judgment, there are consequences, but God forgives the people and wants to reestablish the covenant with them. And so that is what we see happening in chapter 34. So Exodus 34, starting at verse 1 in the ESV. And as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain." So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. You may be seated. What an intriguing passage in Scripture. Moses has already been on top of the mountain and has heard from God. But in that story before, he didn't come down with a glowing face. Something is different about this encounter. And if you read the intervening material, especially in chapter 33, you'll see that God exposes, he says, the backside of his glory to Moses atop the mountain. And that is a detail that's not stated before 
when God speaks to Moses atop of the mountain. It seems that Moses experiences the glory of God in a way that he hasn't experienced before. I want to just walk through the passage verse by verse to get a sense of it in its original context before we look at its receptions, its two receptions in the New Testament. First, the Lord commands Moses to get some fresh slabs of stone. Cut for yourself, verse 1, two tablets of stone, just like the first ones. And I will write on the tablets the same words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. We get a passive-aggressive God here. Just kidding. (laughs) The idea, though, is that the covenant which was broken, symbolized in these two stone slabs, will be renewed here with the same words inscribed on them. He says in verse 2, Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. But he takes pains to tell Moses that only you shall come up the mountain. Remember in the Golden Calf episode how quickly Aaron was taken in by the people, convinced to build a golden calf. God says, none of the elders, not Aaron, none of the people, just you, just you will come up the mountain. The flocks and the herds aren't even allowed to graze opposite that mountain. The narrator here is signaling to us that Moses' presence, his solitary presence, is extremely important for the story. So in verse 4, it says Moses did as the Lord commanded. He cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai. I imagine Moses' calves at this point were pretty strong to have ascended Mount Sinai so many times. But he goes up with these two slabs of stone, and there he meets with God. Now there are some beautiful verses in between verse 4 and verse 29. We get a kind of recital of the Ten Commandments and some other laws, an example of the sorts of things God spoke to Moses atop the mountain, but we also get this language of God's mercy. Verse 6, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So not only do we get the commands of God, but we get statements about the grace, the love, the character of God. But God speaks to Moses atop the mountain, and based on chapter 33, Moses experiences his glory in a way that he hadn't experienced before. He spends a fair amount of time atop the mountain, it says 40 days and 40 nights again, and then he comes down from the mountain, and something is different. Starting at verse 29, it says that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two newly inscribed stone tablets in his hand. But Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. The language in Hebrew is that his face emanated or sent forth rays of light, is what it says. And the verb for send forth is actually connected to the word horn, something that grows forth. 
And some medieval commentators thought that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with horns. And so you'll actually see some artwork depicting Moses this way. That could connect to the golden calf, a thing with horns. But friends, I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think the idea is that light is, is being sent forth from his face. He's radiant with the light of God's glory. And in verse 30, it says that Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, that his face was glowing, shining, and they were afraid of the glory. They couldn't handle it. We're told that his face was radiant because, jumping back to verse 29, because he had been talking with God. Even though the people were afraid they were afraid of the transfigured Moses. Moses insists on them coming to him, in verse 31, so that he could speak to them the words of God. It seems that Moses does speak to them what he'd heard atop the mountain with unveiled face. He needs the word of God to be inextricably connected to the glory of God. And afterward, in verse 32, all the people of Israel came near, not just the elders, not just Aaron. And Moses commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai, again with unveiled face. However, however, verse 33, it says, when Moses had finished speaking this initial message to them, he put a veil or a mask on his face. He knew that the people couldn't handle the glory. They were afraid of the transfigured person that came down from the top of the mountain. They were afraid of the new Moses they saw. So he veiled his face. It seems that when Moses would live his life in the community and go about in public, he had a veil over his face. And I think the word is mask. His face was covered. But we're told in verse 34 that whenever Moses would go in at this point into the tent of meeting, he's not going back up the mountain, whenever he'd go in to speak with the Lord, he would take the veil off. He would open the book to the last page, experience the glory of God. And then he would come out and he'd speak to the people with unveiled face. But then afterwards, he'd put the veil back on. This is a bit confusing, but I think it's important for us to understand that when Moses speaks to the Lord, or rather, when God speaks to Moses, he does so with unveiled face. There's nothing in between Moses and the glory of God when he's in the tent of meeting. And he speaks the word to the people with shining face, but after he's done speaking, his face is veiled. The idea that I want to draw out, which I see through the New Testament, is that the Word of God is intimately connected to the glory of God. That Moses goes to the top of the mountain and he hears God's Word, but he also experiences God's glory. 
And so when he comes down from the mountain, he doesn't just speak words to the people. He, he is a transfigured human being. The word has transformed him. And the people, it seems, have no trouble with the words, the script. What they have trouble with is this transformed human being. They can't handle that. That, I think, is what we see in Exodus 34. And that is the idea that I see the New Testament bringing out in at least two passages. And so right now, I'd like to turn to those passages, beginning in Matthew the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, among the four Gospels, is famous for its depiction of Jesus as a new Moses. In the Sermon on the Mount, it parallels Moses' Sermon on the Plain in Deuteronomy. We get various prophet terminology ascribed to Jesus. In a lot of ways, Jesus is connected with Moses, the flight to Egypt in the beginning of Matthew. It's only in Matthew. But I want to look at chapter 17, Matthew 17, the story of the transfiguration. The transfiguration. I'm going to read through it and note some key verses, but I want you, as we read it, to keep Exodus 34 in mind, okay? It says in Matthew 17 that Jesus took with him, so already a slight difference, Moses was alone, but Jesus took with him three of his most beloved disciples, his inner circle, you could say, Peter, James, and John, his brother. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. So you get this language of by themselves, just like in Exodus 34, Come up the mountain by yourself, but it is a small group. And it says in verse 2 that Jesus was transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorphothi, metamorphosis. He was transformed in his appearance before these disciples, and his face shone like the sun, brilliant in light. And his clothes became white as pure light. Moses is going to the top of the mountain to experience God's glory, and then he shines with a kind of secondhand glory. What the disciples are seeing is the Son of God himself being revealed in pure divine glory, like looking at the sun. As if the connections with Exodus weren't already enough, in verse 3, there appeared to them Elijah and Moses talking with him. These figures are thought to represent the law and the prophets, which stand for the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. And so you see the word of God existing with the glory of God, the incarnate word of God, atop the mountain together, conversing together. And after Peter puts his foot in his mouth, in verse 4, while he was still speaking, it says a bright cloud overshadowed them. Where else do we hear about a cloud? God accompanies the people of Israel in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud. And this is a luminous cloud. It's a cloud full of light, light. 
after the voice speaks, of course the disciples are afraid, just like the elders and Aaron were afraid of Moses. They fell on their faces, but Jesus touched them and said, have no fear. And as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them not to tell anyone about this until he'd been raised. What we see here, friends, is an intensified version of what we see in Exodus 34. We see the Word of God, who had become flesh as Jesus, glorified and conversing with the Hebrew Scriptures in a way. We see that the Word of God results in transformation. Here, transfiguration, that it results in a new sort of human being. This experience caused fear in the first disciples, and Jesus encourages them. But friends, I think this is explicitly alluding to the story of Moses in Exodus 34. The next text that I want to look at is a bit more complicated because it is one of Paul's letters. Uh, Very complicated, no. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it actually is one of the most studied passages in Paul's letters because it's very difficult to follow his flow of thought. Paul had established the church at Corinth, and then when he pulled away, to continue to plant other churches, folks came in and questioned his authority. He calls them super apostles. And so Paul has to write a letter where he defends his apostolic authority, uh, but he, he doesn't use arguments that were common in that day. In verses 7 through 18, Paul contrasts his ministry ministry of the new covenant, he calls it, he contrasts that with the ministry of Moses, that of the old covenant. And like with Matthew, I'm going to read through it and make some comments along the way, but I want you to keep Exodus 34 in mind. Verse 7, he says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone Pretty clear what he's referring to and pretty clear how he thinks about it. If that ministry came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses' face, will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant ministry, have more glory? In between, he says that the old covenant ministry, the ministry of Moses, was being brought to an end. Looking back, reading backwards through the lens of Christ, Paul can see that the covenant with Moses was always meant to be temporary, leading towards a permanent covenant. He continues this argument, this how much more argument, in verses 9 through 11. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it. 
He goes on in verse 11 to say that if what was being brought to an end, in other words, if what was temporary came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? In verse 12, he starts to talk about Christians, about believers in Jesus. And he says some pretty intriguing things. He says, since we have such a hope, that is, since the new covenant is permanent, not temporary, since we have such a permanent hope, we are very bold, bolder than Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites couldn't look at, it says, the outcome The word is telos, the the objective, the purpose of the Old Covenant. What's implied here, if we're not like Moses who veiled his face, is that we remove the veil. He says, their minds, that is the minds of the Israelites, and he's bringing this all the way up to the present moment for him, their minds were hardened To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, so now he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, when they read the Hebrew Scriptures, that same veil remains. So we're moving from the person of Moses to the book of Moses. They see the script, but they don't see the glory. They're not transformed by it. There's a veil there. And then Paul says, the end of verse 14, that only through Christ is the veil taken away. He repeats himself, verse 15, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over not not their faces, but their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, Paul's Lord is Jesus. When one turns to Jesus, as Moses would turn to Yahweh in the tent of meeting, pulling the veil off, when one turns to Jesus, the veil that is over one's heart, when reading the Hebrew Scriptures, that veil is removed. The Lord is the Spirit of Jesus, and where that Spirit is, there is utter freedom, utter freedom. And in verse 18, we read one of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament. And it says that we all, as believers, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. It's metamorphote. We're being transfigured, the same word, into the same image from one degree to another. When you turn to Jesus, the veil that prevents that transformation from the Word of God, that veil is removed. The last page is, my book's there, flipped open. And you gaze at the glory of God directly. And you are transformed like Moses, like Jesus, into the very image of God. By far, my favorite New Testament scholar, Richard Hayes, 
specialist in Paul's letters, talks about New Testament's use of the Old Testament, what we're doing. He summarizes 2 Corinthians 3 in what I think is a beautiful way. He says, The veil on Moses' face hid from Israel the glory of God, which Moses beheld at Sinai, a glory that transfigured him. Israel could not bear looking at the transfigured person and concentrated instead on the script that he gave them. That script bears witness to the glory, to the person transfigured in the image of God, which is the true aim of the Old Covenant. But he says, for those who are fixated on the text as an end in itself, the text remains veiled. But those who turn to the Lord are enabled to see through the text to its telos, its true aim. For them, the veil is removed so that they, like Moses, are transfigured by the glory of God into the image of Jesus Christ. The point, friends, has always been the transformation of human beings into the image of God. That's how we were created in the first place. Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That means that from the beginning, we were meant to display God's glory, to shine to glow with His glory for all to see. Yet sin disfigured that image. It darkened it within us. And so God's aim throughout history has been to restore His image in human beings. We see the beginning of this restored image in Exodus 34. And we see its climax at the transfiguration with Jesus. When Paul writes what he writes then in 2 Corinthians 3, he's talking about that restored image. The the Torah, in other words, was always meant to point beyond itself to its source, a source of sheer glory. The sin-darkened Israelites in Exodus, they couldn't handle it. Like looking into the sun, they couldn't bear it. So they contented themselves with script, with tablets of stone, and refused to be transformed by the glory which emanates from it. Such script, as you read through the Bible, became a source of guilt and death rather than a means of transformation. But in the person of Jesus, we see what the script was meant to do all along. We, in other words, were always meant to glow, to shine from the very beginning. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. Christians, a city on a hill, right? 
We were always meant to gaze at God's glory like Moses through his word and to shine as lights in the world. Through Jesus, Paul says, the veil has been removed. The veil which has stood between us and God's glory. Preventing God's light from transforming us into lights for the world. The veil has been removed, which means that whenever we engage God's Word, whenever we commune with His Spirit, whenever we gather as Christ's body, we're being charged with the glory of God. So like Night Night Farm, friends, I want you to put yourselves under the lamp of God's light this week. And make sure there is nothing in between, nothing standing in between you and the glory of Jesus. Make sure that the light is not secondhand, that it's true light. And so this morning I urge you, I encourage you to be charged with the light of Christ so you can shine like stars in the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sharing your glory with us, for sharing it with Moses, showing it to us in Jesus, and giving us grace so that we're not overwhelmed by it. Help us, Lord, to see your glory, even if it's only for a second, and that there'd be nothing in between. Lord, transform us from within so that we can radiate your glory to a very, very dark world, so that they can come to the light, the light of Jesus, and find peace. We love you and praise you and continue to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.